So, were you really a professional wrestler? Unfortunately, the answer is... Hello and welcome to the Field Reports podcast. Each episode I talk to field biologists about their field work, science and much more. And this episode we have an ecologist from the University of Vermont, Professor Nathan Sanders. Hi Nate, could you explain a bit about what you work on? Yeah, so generally I'm interested in uh, the causes and consequences of biodiversity change. Why is it that the number of species changes from place to place on the planet? And what are the consequences of those changes for how ecosystems work? So does it involve a lot of field work? Yeah, so I'm, I am a field biologist for sure and got into this kind of research, um, mostly because I, as a kid I spent most of my time in the field um, doing, you know, the equivalent of kid field work. Mm-hmm. So that, that is running around in the woods, um, mostly looking for bears and um, beavers and those sorts of things. And I never saw any of those. But what I did always see was the ants. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I spent a lot of time running around finding ants under logs. Um, and sure enough, that's what I do now, run around in forests and in mountains finding ants under logs. Yeah. Um, so on your Twitter bio, I, I, I read that you were a professional wrestler. How did that uh-huh. transition happen? Uh, you know, that's actually a funnier story than just a transition. So when I created um, my Twitter profile, it was because I was teaching a class mm-hmm. and I was trying to share news with a bunch of undergraduate students at the University of Tennessee. And mostly just as a goof, I mentioned that I was a professional, former professional wrestler. Uh-huh. just to see if any of the students would notice. Yeah. And of course they noticed. And I never actually told them the truth, which is, unfortunately, I am not a former professional wrestler. <laughs> but I've left it in my Twitter profile. Um, and even to this day, you know, I'll bump into some ecologist at a meeting yeah. or be interviewed by some ecologist on Skype. And they'll say, so, were you really a professional wrestler? Yeah. And unfortunately, the answer is No. But it's so good. To, uh, it's a good conversation starter, if nothing else. But did you wish you you were you were a professional wrestler? <laughs> I, I wish that I were a former professional wrestler. <laughs> yeah, I'm not okay. sure I want to be a professional wrestler. Um. So could you tell us where you conduct your field research? What kind yeah. of places do? You- Yeah, so I started out doing um, field research in the deserts of the southwestern U.S. Mm -hmm. and in California. Um, And since then, I've done work mostly in mountains around the world. Um, So in the Smoky Mountains and in the Rocky Mountains especially, Mm -hmm. uh, but other sites as well. And we've also set up a long-term warming experiment uh, at Duke Forest and Harvard Forest in the U.S., Um, So the fieldwork happens in forests and in mountains. Um, My favorite places to work are in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee and in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So so when you go on fieldwork, say long fieldworks, things often don't go as planned, right? So do you have any experiences or stories of fieldwork failures or challenges? Yeah, I mean, so the... um, my very first summer of doing fieldwork, when I was a PhD student, um, failed miserably. So I had this, this um, what I thought was a brilliant idea to go to the desert 
and find every ant colony in about a three hectare plot mm -hmm. and flag all of them, count all of them, look at their nearest neighbor um, distances, and then do some statistics to look at spatial patterns in ant colonies to infer uh, interspecific competition. And so I spent most of the summer um, walking around in the desert, putting flags in hundreds and hundreds of, um, or near hundreds and hundreds of ant colonies. And then um, the monsoon rains started. And come to find out, once it rains in the desert, many ant species relocate their nests. Mm -hmm. And so all of this work I'd done all summer um, basically vanished after one rainstorm. Um, so that taught me a lot about how to think creatively and quickly uh, to do experiments and how to plan for the worst. Um, nevertheless, there were still many other field field failures, as it were. I remember um, doing a baiting experiment where I was putting out different kinds of baits mm -hmm. for ants in a forest. Um, and then I was going, you know, two hours later to check um, on the baits to see what happened to them. And I went out and, you know, it was nighttime, so I shined my flashlight on one of the baits and the bait was completely gone. And I thought, oh man, there are so many ants out here. They've taken this entire pecan sandy cookie away. Mm -hmm. I go to the next one and sure enough, everything is gone from it as well. Yeah. I think, God, these ants are going crazy. <laughs> and then I go to the next one and there are no ants, but there is a skunk eating <laughs> the baits. And yeah. so I thought, oh, right, there are other animals in these forests as well. Uh, so there, you know, there are many failures like that. But again, you learn um, from those mistakes and you learn how to plan ahead and be ready for any disaster right. so that you get something out of your effort. Yeah, right. Um, have you had um, like people, random people coming and approaching you and asking what, why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the... Um, uh, this current experiment we're doing in Colorado is not an ant experiment, but it's an experiment where we're heating up montane meadows mm -hmm. to look at the effects of climate and climate change on biodiversity and ecosystem function in plant communities. And we have a high elevation site, which is at about, um, you know, a little under 4,000 meters. But that high elevation site is also where some ecotourists come almost every day. And so there's a, a bus of people that stops at our site almost every day and gets out and, you know, we have to give a, a spiel every day to a group of people who are visiting, sometimes visiting the Rocky Mountains for the first time ever. Yeah. And maybe, you know, because they um, uh, might not uh, believe in climate change, so it might be the first time they've ever heard from a scientist about the causes and consequences of climate change. Yeah. So do you think it's it's kind of a good opportunity for science communication? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's also a really good practice for our PhD students and undergraduates. You know, many of them um, are have never done anything like it. And so as the summer progresses, they get better and better. And, you know, we give them a little bit of coaching on what to say and how to say it to make the work sound compelling and important. Uh, but I think I think it's a great opportunity for the students to get practice, and of course, it's a great opportunity for more of the public to hear from scientists about what scientists actually do in the field. Right. Yeah. So, um, how does uh, working in the field shape your ideas for your research? Um, you know, 
The short answer is I don't really know um, because I, you know, it just sort of happens yes. as if by magic where you're walking around and you see some pattern or you see some interaction yeah. or you see some system which would be ideal for asking particular questions. Uh, you know, as I said, I as a kid, I spent a lot of time running around in the woods um, and I think that is doing field work. You know, you're yeah. in the in nature, you're seeing things that you've never seen before and maybe no one else has ever seen before. And so figuring out whether um, what you see is important and how you might go about designing an experiment. Um, you know, it, it sounds bad to say it, but it, it just sort of happens. Um, sometimes it happens, you know, instantaneously. Yeah. Sometimes it happens six months later as you're thinking about you know, whether the Boston Celtics are going to um, win the NBA championship. And remember that interaction you saw um, four months ago at a forest in Sweden. Yeah. Right. Um, can you describe um, the day when you, when you had your best idea or the best fieldwork experience? And how does that compare to a normal, typical day in a field? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't... As I just said, I don't think I ever had um, any epiphany while I was out in nature doing field work. Yeah. But um, many years ago, I remember thinking about variation among individuals because I spent a lot of time watching ant colonies um, interacting with one another. And these colonies seem to have personalities. That is, each colony behaved slightly different, differently from other colonies around it. Yeah. Um, and so I always thought that individual variation was important for how species interacted with one another. Mm -hmm. And as I described before, it's, it's hard um, in the moment to think of the experiment you will do with ants when you think about something like individuals vary from one another or differ from one another. Does that matter yeah. for how communities are put together? Um, and so the epiphany happened several years later and thinking about a completely different system mm -hmm. and the epiphany was um, that there are plants that you can clone and in the U.S. one of the most common uh, plants in the eastern U.S. is a plant called goldenrod, Solidago altissima or Solidago canadensis mm -hmm. and you can see in nature that these individuals differ from one another. And so we had the idea to try and uh, design an experiment where we manipulated individual variation in plants, but then asked how that affected insect communities. And that was one of the best ideas um, we ever had. Mm -hmm. But it is a perfect example of what I was just describing, that, you know, we it started with ants, yeah. and then many years later, um, the, the light bulb went off that we can't do the experiment in ants, but here's this other system where we can ask the same question, basically, um, and get a good answer. Now, is that, you know, a typical day? Um, I wish many days were like that, where you have some observation and then you have a light bulb, light bulb go off and you know exactly what the right experiment should be. Yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen like that, at least with me. I'm sure it does with others, but not with me. <laughs> okay. Um, so when you, when you do your packing for a long field work, is there anything unique or particular uh, thing that you pack with you? 
Yeah, you know, when I started out doing field work in the desert, um, I would always wear a cowboy hat. Just uh-huh. because I thought, if I'm going to be in the desert in the southwestern U.S., I have to wear a cowboy hat. Yes. And so for many years, I wore that. Um, but then it just got to be so big and cumbersome that I quit wearing it. Um, the other uh, great thing that I started bringing into the field, you know, many years later, was... Um, my phone so I could listen to podcasts as I was walking around in the field, you know, counting ant nests. And that completely changed field work for me. Mm-hmm. You know, on one hand, um, it's great wandering around doing the mundane procedures of counting nests and putting flags in nests and all that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, it's so much more enjoyable if you can listen to This American Life or um, another great podcast as you're doing the field work. Yeah. Um, I always, you know, like everybody, I always bring a couple of books to read at night. Um, for many summers, my wife and I would watch the current season of Game of Thrones. So we would download the entire season of Game of Thrones and watch that over the course of a field season. Yeah. So it's usually time to get caught up on, you know, some TV show that you didn't watch at all over the course of the academic year and get caught up on all the books you didn't read during the academic year. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so do you, do you crave for or miss anything when you're on these long field work? Um, yeah. So when um, I started out and when I was an assistant professor and even associate professor, I would go off, you know, and do field work for extended periods. And then my wife, who is also an ecologist, would also go off somewhere else and do field work for extended periods. Um, so early on, you know, of course, I missed my family, um, my kids. And so what we decided to do was try and figure out projects that we could do at the same time, at the same place. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started working more closely on projects at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we were flexible enough in our research expectations and um, the kinds of projects we wanted to do that um, we made it work by going to a field station that is incredibly family-friendly. So our, our kids are there with us. Um, we have, you know, a, a small cabin at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab where we live. Our kids go mountain biking and hiking and fort building all day yeah. while we're doing field work. And so initially, the thing I miss most, like most folks, I suspect, is um, family and friends. Yeah. And so our solution was to just pack up the family and go to some place to do the field work. Now, I know that doesn't work for everybody, but it certainly worked for us. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. So, so how, do you, how do you use technology um, for, to your help in, in field work? Do you have like unique equipment that you carry with you or maybe use some apps on your phone? Yeah, the short answer is no. I am, um, you know, I, I like to be an early adopter of technology in my life, but there's something about being kind of a throwback ecologist um, or an old school ecologist in the field. And so I um, have never adopted any serious technology um, in my field work. You know, about the the fanciest thing I've used, and I've used it for a long time, is um, one of those Raytech thermometer guns where you can just shoot it and it tells you what the surface temperature of whatever you're shooting is. Is that like a laser uh, laser thermometer? Yes, one of those laser thermometers, yeah. And so that's about the fanciest thing I've ever used and probably ever will use. Okay. <laughs> um, so you had the environmental program at the University of Vermont. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, so we moved here in January, um, and I'm the director of the environmental program at the University of Vermont. Um, the environmental program started in 1972. It's one of the oldest in the country. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are 450 undergraduate students who um, study in the environment or environmental studies at the University of Vermont. And what I am supposed to be doing is help lead that program to increase its national and international prominence. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I really want to do is increase the quality and quantity of significant research experiences for undergraduates. I mean, for me, one of the things that changed my life, and probably for many other people, is getting engaged in serious research early on as an undergraduate student. Um, and so I want to increase the, the opportunity for students to do that early in their time at the University of Vermont. Um, the other thing I really want students to do is to um, increase their awareness of, of how the world works. Yeah. So I think a lot of students, you know, come to a place like the University of Vermont, um, which is a very special university in a very special part of the United States. And then they may do a study abroad in Australia or France or Denmark. Um, but there's this, there are 49 other states in the United States and many of them are very different from Vermont. And so I'd also like to increase the, the opportunity for students to engage in serious scholarship, serious service learning um, in, in places like the Mississippi Delta or um, on reservations in the southwestern U.S. or in um, the inner city of Atlanta or Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you think um, general public and students contrib can contribute to the um, aims of the program? Yeah, I, I think that um, anytime you have a large group of people together um, with diverse perspectives, you get incredible, um, you get an incredible opportunity to hear, you know, the kinds of things they're interested in, the kinds of solutions they might provide to diverse problems. Um, I mean, you know, as a, a scientist, one of the things that I am most impressed by are studies about how people interact with one another. And one of the studies that I've been relying on the most lately is one that shows that anytime you bring a, a diverse group of people together with diverse perspectives, that diverse group provides better solutions to whatever problem you present to them. Um, better relative to a, a, a group of, you know, old white guys. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about is trying to create opportunities to bring diverse groups together to solve some of the most pressing problems facing society today. And so that's exactly where students and uh, the general public can weigh in. Yeah. Right. Um, so can we talk about these two projects uh, that have really cool names called Warm and Salt? What are they? Yeah. So Warm is uh, a project where we're looking at warming and um, the effects of climate warming and biotic interactions on uh, biodiversity and ecosystem function in mountain communities around the world. And so what we do is um, at a particular site, we um, use open top chambers to heat up particular patches of plant communities mm -hmm. or not. And then we remove the dominant plant species or not. So it's a two by two factorial experiment, which lets us look at the combined and relative effects of temperature change and uh, biotic interactions on how communities and ecosystems work. 
We do that at high elevation sites and low elevation sites. So then we can ask, you know, are the effects of warming different at cold, high elevation sites than they are at warm, low elevation sites? And then we replicate that at sites around the world. And so now we have um, 10 or 11 of these sites running around the world where we're looking at the combined and relative effects of temperature and biotic interactions on how communities and ecosystems function. Um, so the response variables are not ant-related. Um, the response variables are plant-related. So how do plant communities change? How does uh, community-level trait expression change? And then there are low-ground processes. How do soil nutrient dynamics change? Um, how do microbial communities change in response to these treatments? Um, the SALT project is um, more of a, an ant project. So that project is in collaboration with Mike Kaspari at the University of Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and it's really his baby. Um, but the general idea is that um, consumers are limited by sodium. So if you travel around Vermont looking at dairy farms, you know, often you will see a giant salt lick in a, a pasture for cows. Um, because herbivores are limited by sodium. Um, in fact, any non-carnivore is limited by sodium. And so the key question is, what are the consequences of sodium limitation for how food webs are put together and how communities are put together? And so the first experiments we're doing are simple sodium addition experiments to look at how um, interactions between uh, plants and consumers change. But then we're also doing broad-scale surveys looking at how sodium limitation at geographic scales influences the structure of food webs and communities. Mm -hmm. so, so for the WARM project, I'm curious, how, you, how do you heat up the trees? How do you increase the... Yeah, so it's not, um, we use open-top chambers, passive open-top chambers. And so we're, we're not looking at um, the responses of trees, but we're looking at short-statured plants. Uh -huh. And so we use um, these chambers that are common in Arctic systems, um, and they heat up the air temperature by about 2 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. so, and, and, and that's enough to actually see the differences? What do you, what do you see? Yeah, that's, that's the key question. Um, you know, what happens when a montane community heats up by 2 degrees Celsius? Um, the short answer is that the experiment's been running for only a couple of years. So we're seeing some shifts in trait expression, and we're seeing some shifts in, um, in community structure once we warm up communities. And so the question is, will we see the same responses everywhere? Or will the responses of plant communities vary from place to place on the planet? Yeah. All right. So um, my final question, uh, um, what do you think is a major or um, is one of the major unanswered questions in the field of your study? Yeah. So, you know, I'm interested in, as I said, biodiversity. Why does biodiversity change from place to place on the planet? And what are the consequences of that change? For me, the most amazing thing about biodiversity science is that we don't even know how much biodiversity there is. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's crazy. That's like trying to be a mathematician without knowing about numbers or trying to be a geographer without knowing about maps. The unit of study um, is essentially unknown in biodiversity. The other thing that I think is really fascinating is that there are many dimensions of biodiversity. 
it's easiest to talk about the number of species. Why does the number of species change from place to place on the planet? But there's variation among individuals as well. And what we're finding more and more is that that variation among individuals is just as important for how ecosystems function, for how species interact with one another, for how individuals respond to a changing environment. And so I think that understanding how variation among individuals changes from place to place on the planet and um, affects the ability of populations and communities to respond to a changing planet is really, really fascinating and where I hope and think much of community ecology and macroecology is headed. Yeah, so, so do you think we would ever be able to uh, come up with a number for the biodiversity? Yeah, I don't know if there will ever be, you know, the number for how many species there are on the planet. You know, and increasingly we're learning that the concept of species for most of biodiversity, that is microbes below ground, might not even be a relevant concept. Yeah. And so I think that the answer is no. We will never know that there are 17,437,106 species on the planet. Yeah. We'll probably never know that. But I think getting a better understanding of um, relative biodiversity, that is, you know, how does the number of microbes, plants, consumers change from place to place on the planet, um, and why, and what are the consequences, would be a, a better place to start. Mm -hmm. So why do you think we need to study biodiversity? Lots of reasons. You know, I think that um, most people are interested in nature. Yeah. That's why, you know, David Attenborough is a star. He um, is not only a compelling figure, but he's talking about things that people actually care a lot about. And I think that, you know, there is this interest in biodiversity that is inherent, inherent in most people on the planet. Of course, there are other arguments, which are that um, humanity relies on biodiversity in every way imaginable. I think um, that... Again, it's easy to think about biodiversity as the number of species, um, but we also rely on variation among individuals within species. And so understanding those links, those reliances of humanity on biodiversity in all of its dimensions um, is fundamental to, to understanding how we make it in the world today and how we hopefully will make it in the world tomorrow. Okay, yeah. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? No, I think that, you know, the key things for anyone who's interested in um, being an ecologist or being a scientist is to let your curiosity drive you. Uh, pursue the questions you think are interesting and that others will be interested in so you can attract a, a group of collaborators and students. Yeah. Don't pursue questions that you think will attract funding. Instead, pursue questions that attract interest. Great advice. Thank you very much for your time yeah. and thanks for being on the very first episode of our podcast. You bet. That was Professor Nathan Sanders. You can check out his website at natesanders.org. I'm your host Ravindra and you can follow me on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN. That is R-A-V-I-N-D-R-A underscore PN. And don't forget to check out journal of animalecology.wordpress.com for more interesting stories. Thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode.